0: Christy Dignam is on the line, uh, Phil. Say hello.
1: Hello, Christy. Yeah, no, how are you doing, um, Phil? It's fucking amazing listening to you here, rather than on. Jesus, you, you've got a fucking Duracell battery in you. Well, he looks you up on Wikipedia there. You're 98 years of age. Are you on the gear or something? I mean, you're fucking unbelievable. Listen, myself and the boys in Aslan are thinking of doing a version of that song you wrote, um... How much is that doggy in the window? Did you write that? Because. that, Christy. Well, it was written in 1897, so I think it must have been new. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> ah, look, as you might expect, the stars of the music fraternity were lining up to talk to Phil Coulter, because Phil Coulter is, of course,. One of the most successful songwriters that Ireland has ever produced. And the reason he's on this podcast is because I actually met him on a television show. I met him on the six o'clock show and uh, I was listening to the stories he was telling. and I go, God, I have that guy on my podcast. So I literally talked to him off the show and he agreed straight off the bat. He gave me his number and uh, I called him up and, uh, and, he's, and he turned up on the podcast. And if you're of a certain vintage, um, you will be all too aware Um, of just how big Phil is in the music world. And if you're not of a certain vintage, you should check this guy out. I mean, the history is incredible. Um, Here's a list of names that he's worked with. Okay? Elvis Presley, Van Morrison, Sinead O'Connor, Cliff Richard, Luke Kelly, the Dubliners, the Bay City Rollers, and even the great comedian Billy Connolly, which there's an interesting story about. And that's only some of the people he's written and produced top 10 hits for. Phil has also written three hugely successful Eurovision songs. And finally... If you ever found yourself singing along to Ireland's call while watching an international rugby match, well, you know who you can blame that on? Phil Coulter. And blame is a word, of course, um, which comes up about that song. And uh, I get Phil's take on it as well.
2: Oh, and by the way,
0: he's a fantastic
2: chatter. Albert calls me. The first word he said, Phil, he wakes me up. said, Phil, you lucky bastard. He said, I said, Albert, what's going on? He said, I've just been to see Presley in the Hilton in Las Vegas. And he's singing your song. So the guys who were at school with me, for Christ's sake, who were thrown into internment without trial, getting pulled out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning in their jocks and thrown into the back of Army Land Rovers for no better reason than they played GAA, they played Irish music, yeah. they spoke Irish. That was enough. And I looked across at Luke Kelly, and there were tears in his eyes. Now, let me tell you, that didn't happen too often with Kelly. He was a hard chaw So to move Luke Kelly with that song that was the moment that i knew that the town i love so well had hit the mark the only dissenting voice was the blazer from cork who objected uh, on the grounds that cork didn't get mentioned in the letter <laughs> why well, wasn't
0: yeah. cork mentioned in the four pro provinces of ireland you never yeah. mentioned cork stick around for my chat with phil uh, but before that Um, I managed to hack my way into Angela Merkel's voicemails. If you're not aware of it, Angela Merkel is going to be stepping down as German leader. And she's had a huge um, influence over European politics for the last 20 years. And um, I thought we'd pay tribute tribute to her uh, by hacking into her voicemails and listening to some of the well-known political leaders that have been apparently getting in touch with her this week as she starts her farewell to politics in Germany. That is, of course, this week's comedy sketch, which is exclusive to you as a loyal listener to the Mario Rosenstock podcast, which is supported by our good friends at Curry's PC World. And this week is your last chance to get your entries in for the very fancy laptop that Curry's have given us uh, to celebrate their back-to-school and back-to-college deals. The prize is a fantastic HP Pavilion 2-in-1 laptop with a 14-inch touchscreen, Intel Core i3 processor, haven't a clue what I'm talking about. 8.5 hours battery life and loads of other fancy bells and whistles. To enter the competition, all you need to do is transport yourself back to your school or college days. Tell me a story unearth some potentially embarrassing or awkward memories that you may have had we want your stories about a time when you did something maybe really stupid, ended up at the principal's office or or even just a funny story about going back to school or back to college or a time when you really embarrassed yourself in front of your classmates, maybe you have a great story from sharing a house during your university days it can be anything as long as it makes me laugh. And you can email me your story directly on Rosenstock at gmail.com Rosenstock at gmail.com Or you can leave a WhatsApp voice note on the Mario Rosenstock podcast hotline 087-268-5459 087-268-5459 All of those details are in the show notes just below this episode. Okay, let's cross over to Germany now where Angela Merkel is starting her farewell to international politics We got access to our voicemails Shh
3: Guten Morgen This is Angela Merkel Please leave a message Dankeschön Good morning, Angela Gesundheit, Mark Fry It's Boris here uh, Just wanted to, you know Wish you well Ipso facto actum baby in your retirement Well done, congratulations on a job well. Very well done, huzzah um, Chamba Wamba, just a small favour before you go per se, uh, before you set sail for the sunlit uplands, would you perchance have any fuel at your disposal in your petrol pumps, pumpity pumps, squirt squirt? to spare or to lend. Not that we have any problem in that regard. You know, of course we're not short. You know, things have never been better here. The economy's flying like a Phoenix. We are igniting like a rocket up through the stratosphere like a um, space shuttle. But all rockets need fuel. And of course we you know we have of course a veritable superfluity of fuel in Britain. You know, things have never been better but you know, we could always do with a little bit extra to spare if you have any at all Leave a few barrels, one barrel, just a couple of cans, anything you've got, please. Ciao. Good morning, Angela. This is soon to be president again, Donald J. Trump. I just wanted to say you never supported me. Never. As president, never. You were an anti-Trumper. You're a nasty, nasty woman. Not nice. And Germany, you know, Germany's not paying its debts. It's delinquent big word delinquent. I can't wait to see who comes next in Germany. You know, I could run for chancellor in Germany. German, you know, Trump is a German name, German family, you know, Germany, great country. Nobody knows more about the Germans than me. Nasty woman. Uh, uh, good morning, uh, Angela. Uh, VK, uh Michal Martin here, uh, the Irish uh, prime minister. I just wanted to wish you the best as you finish up in the job and thank you for your ongoing support. Au revoir, Angela.
1: Uh, good morning Angela. Uh, this is uh, Leo Varadkar here, the uh, the Irish Prime Minister. Uh well I'm just on a short break at the moment but I'll be back at the back in the reins uh, soon. Um, I just wanted to thank you for everything. Uh, take it handy. Um, I tweeted out a video of you, actually, uh, that uh, with me. So if you wanted to retweet it or, or like it, I'm sticking it up on Instagram as well. I don't know if you're on Instagram. Anyway, yeah, ciao. Good morning, Angela.
0: This is Pascal who's speaking. You may not remember me. I'm the Irish Minister for Finance, but we met once or twice. <clears throat> I'll keep this short.
3: Now listen to me.
1: You tell whoever's taking over over there.
3: Nobody touches my bleeding corporate tax rate. You got that? The cut co- stays at 12.5. Do you hear what I'm saying to you, you German poor guy? Yeah.
0: Okay. Thank you, Angela. Bye-bye. And that would be an interesting developing story, won't it? Whether Pascal Donahue can um, strike a deal over the corporate tax rate. We seem to hold it in great sanctity here in this country. Um, And uh, a lot of people kind of wondering when we'll join the rest of the 140 countries. um, Or will we? Uh, It remains to be seen. Speaking of voicemails, Phil Coulter gets his fair share too, which you will hear during my chat with him. As you can imagine, Phil has a lot of stories about the incredible list of people that he's worked with. And I wanted to hear all of them. But of course, for time reasons, I had to choose carefully. So I started straight at the top with the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Q. Phil.
2: When I was uh, in my early teens, mid-teens, um, in my little uh, attic bedroom that I shared with my two brothers in the Terraced House in Derry, um, we had a little crystal set where we used to listen to radio. Um, and apart from BBC, Radio Luxembourg and a station called AFN, American Forces Network. That's mm. where you heard the more kind of American records. That's when I first became aware of, like um, that, that whole explosion of rock and roll, rockabilly, um, where you had uh, Buddy Holly, you had Fats Domino, you had Little Richard, and of course, Elvis Presley. So pop songs before that had been kind of safe, Mario. You know, there are songs like, how much is that doggy in the window, you know? I mean, a previous, a, a, previous, a previous Eurovision entry for the United Kingdom a couple of years before us was Sing Little Birdie, Sing, Sing, Sing. I mean, I kid you not. Oh, that's Jesus. the kind of pop music we were talking about. Then along came Presley with Heartbreak Hotel, Hound Dog, Don't Be Cruel, Ah, that's a whole diff- different game, and he sounded like he was.
0: He sounded like people listening to him on the radio thought there was a black man singing, and even the sentiments of the song were slightly lascivious. I mean, "Hound Dog" is, uh, you know, "Hound Dog" is a kind of a dirty song, really. If you dig beneath the uh, lyrics,
2: all of the above, yeah, uh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, he was very sexy. I mean, he, you didn't even have to see him, you know, with the with the with the with the, with the swiveling hips, etc. You didn't even have to see him. You are quite right, just to hear Presley, you knew he was a sexy kind of bugger, yeah.
0: And he wrote and he sang one of your songs. I mean, what is that
2: like? Yes, this is a there's quite a story in this too. Um, um, in the before we even get to Elvis Presley, the the the, the uh the evolution of the song, uh, I used to drink in, uh, in a in a pub in London uh called the Queen's Elm, uh, which was a, a kind of a haunt of all the emigre Irish and all the uh, the London Irish rugby guys and the recently arrived uh paddies would be drinking there. And amongst the clientele, amongst the regular clientele, there was uh a guy that I became friendly with called Dermot Harris. Um, and over months then, it transpired that he was Richard Harris's brother. And when Richard would be in town, he would come to the Queen's Elm and have a few pints, et cetera. So over, I'd been a big fan of Harris, not only for his acting, but for uh, one of the classic records of my era, uh, MacArthur Park. It was it, it was groundbreaking. It was seven, eight minutes long. And it was just a wonderful piece of work composed uh, arranged and produced by Jimmy Webb. But then Harris fell out with Jimmy Webb and and gave up the recording and went back to making movies, which I always thought was a crime because, you know, he may not have been the greatest singer in the world, Richard Harris, but he had that actor's ability to breathe life into a lyric, okay? Mm. So um, over several months of discussion and a lot of drink, it has to be said, a lot a lot of drink, I persuaded Harris back in the studio. And we made an album... Um, the title track was My Boy. So that then uh, entered the, the UK charts and the American record label uh, to promote it over there insisted that Harris would tour the United States. So we had set it off, we had it off on a four-week tour and we toured the States with like a 35-piece orchestra, the whole nine yards. In those days, it was, it was all extravagance. So we got, the, we got the album into the top 20 in, uh, in the States. Then we came home, Harris... I went back to making movies, and I gave some serious consideration to checking myself into St. John of Gods because it had been one of those tours. <laughs> Trying to, try to keep up with Richard Harris. Jesus, I still have the marks on my back from that tour. But anyway, yeah. so um, but then that was it. I thought, well, you know, that's the end of that, but it was a great adventure, um, and we got, a, we got a chart entry. And then I got a phone call in the middle of the night from a great pal of mine, Albert Hammond great song. Right? We were yes. We were both contemporaries in Denmark Street. Albert is like one moment in time, ah, the, air, the air that I breathe, it never rains in Southern California. Like, dozens, dozens of songs. And all the Joe Dolan hits as well, of course. Make me an island. Albert, that's exactly him. Teresa, you're such a good-looking woman, all of the above. Jesus. So anyway, um, Albert calls me, and the first word he said, Phil, he wakes me up. He said, Phil, you lucky bastard, he said. I said, Albert, what's going on? He said, I've just been to see Presley in the Hilton in Las Vegas and he's singing your song. No. That was the first, that was the first I was aware of it. Um, normally, you know, to get a song to Elvis Presley, there's not, a, there's not a songwriter on the planet back then, certainly, who wouldn't have sold his children into slavery to get Elvis Presley to, to record his song. Um, but in the process, you would have had to jump through several hoops. The biggest hoop would have been Colonel Tom Parker, who would have wanted to own a half of the song for a start off we didn't do any of that why well because presley who was going through a rough patch in his own marriage heard the presley heard their richard harris version and could kind of identify with the song so he fancied that he could uh, he could do a job on it so it was his idea to record the song so albert tells me he's he's uh, he's performing it in las vegas it was maybe 6 months later before he got around to recording it 6 months later again it was released first of all on an album and then pulled off as a single and it was Presley's, one of the biggest hits he had in the five years before he passed away.
0: Unbelievable. And is there a moment at all, Phil? I don't know if this, if if, if, this, if you're this kind of person. Is there a moment at all where you're in a car and the top is down or you're just in a car? Uh, is there a moment when you're at home, you're listening to the radio? Is there a moment when you put on the record and you hear Elvis Presley singing your words and you go, exactly. Jesus Christ, I don't know oh. what life is about, but. My hairs are standing on my arms. The greatest song singer of all time is singing something that I sat down at a table and wrote.
2: You know, I don't I don't find myself putting the record on and playing it very often, but it does happen quite often. Probably uh, late night when I when I be driving and uh, the president my boy will come on. And you're quite right. It's an instinctive thing. The hairs on my the hairs on my on my arm do stand up and the penny drops, you know. You tend to get a little bit, blasé would be the wrong word, but when this is your livelihood, when this is your profession, you know, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time reviewing my catalogue and pat myself on the back for the various covers of my songs. But when something like Presley jumps out as you're driving down the M50 at, at, uh, at midnight, you know, you definitely, you definitely get a little bit of a glow. You know, not think, well, for all the shit times and all the disappointments and all the hard yeah. things like this make it worthwhile.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to finish off by just f- finishing off with some names about the the top there, the biography. You also incredibly wrote a song. It was kind of a novelty song in a way for Billy Connolly, one of the greatest fecking comedians of all time, um, yeah. which, I mean, working with Billy Connolly itself must have been a treat.
2: Oh, entirely, entirely. That was uh, when I look back on my on my associations uh, with performers uh, as, as a writer and a producer, I think. There are a handful in the stand out, and and Billy uh, would certainly be one with one of those. We're still friendly, we're still pals, we're still close, we still we still communicate. Um, but that was started off as a kind of a a very unlikely combination because uh, I got the call um, from Billy's manager. Um, I'd never heard of Billy Connolly. Uh, I was I was then in the middle of my of my teeny barber era with the Bay City Rollers. Uh, we had a string of hits with them. Then a band called Kenny we had a string of hits with them. And we were now currently- when you say a string
0: of hits, I mean these. We're talking for our listeners. We're talking about American Billboard number ones and UK number ones as well.
2: Yeah, the, I mean the Bay City Rollers were were the biggest teeny barber act on the globe. And I mean, you know, they talk about One Direction, etc. These days, but the Bay City Rollers were the One Direction of their time. There was a sea of tartan Mario that mm. that, that that ran from South it's America marriage. to the Far mm. East. You know. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so we were then with a band. Called, we were then producing a band called Slick, featuring Midyur of of, wow. of uh, Band Aid. That mid-year. Mm-hmm. Um he was the lead singer, and we had we had a number one on the charts with a song called "Forever and Ever." Um, mm-hmm. And their manager, man called Frank Lynch, called me to congratulate me on the number one. I said, "Listen, Phil, uh, we're all excited about that and Slick. That da, da da da." But I need a favor. I said, "Yeah, what can I do?" For you? He said. Um, well, I'm looking after another act up here uh, And I need you to come up and make a live album Because he's making a bit of noise up here And I, really, I need a live album um, And I said, oh yeah, well Who is he? He said, Billy Conway I said, never heard of him, what does he do? He said, well, he's basically a folk singer um, and He sang in a band With Jerry Rafferty called The Humble Bums But he tells gags as well in between The songs and he's hilarious And I remember saying to Frank Frank, are you having a laugh? You really want me to drop the Bay City Roller to drop Slick and come up, come up and make an album with some folk singer that tells jokes? No. So anyway, Frank had a great power of persuasion. That's why he was managing successful acts, of course. Um, and the next thing I know, I find myself uh, in a mobile studio outside the King's Theatre in Glasgow. Um, uh, I went up there under sufferance, Mario. I, I didn't want to do this. I was doing it. I was doing it really uh, as a favor to uh, to Frank Lynch. Who had reminded me that I owed him a favor, so uh, I mean I was as impressed with Billy Connolly as he was with Phil Coulter because <laughs> up come this like London record producer uh, who Billy says he said uh, we we circled each other like two dogs. He said a Phil, do you remember Phil? He said he said was all you know all very smart and wearing a cravat and very neat about the arse. He said. <laughs> very neat about the arse. Very, very about neat the arse. about the arse. Yes, that's, that's exactly it. So, as I say, it, was, didn't, it didn't get off to a great start, but within the first 10 minutes of, of this of his routine uh, in the King's Theatre, I just threw away my stopwatch, threw away the clipboard, and I said to myself, Jesus, this is the funniest guy I've ever heard in my life. There was something about that edgy Glaswegian humour that just struck a chord with me, being from the north of Ireland, that kind of very abrasive humour. Mm. And, you know, this was, bear in mind, Mario, this was at a time when comedians were telling gags, like Frank Carson. Ah, oh, you hear That's that one right. about Paddy Irishman? A lot of that went on. So this was not telling gags. This was not punchlines about Paddy the Irishman, Paddy the Scotsman, Paddy the Englishman. This was a completely different take on it Also, there was something very fresh, very, very, um, very very exciting about the whole thing. And of course, very disrespectful to, 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 to everyone and everybody. But it just appealed to me. I thought, this guy is so funny. And, you know, all these years later, I still think Billy Connolly is one of the funniest guys on the planet. And here was, here was, here was, here's a little adventure that I had. Billy and I were in, were in L.A. Where we were working on some recording in L.A. Um, and we were swanning about the Beverly Hills Hotel. Um, uh, and we got invited to, by, by some mutual friend out there, we were told that there's this new comedian who's beginning to make waves and he's, he's playing in the whiskey, of go-go T- uh, tomorrow night, if you want, we can we can comp a couple of tickets. So I said, well, yeah, I'm curious. Let's see what's going on." The comedian was Robin Williams, ah, right? Yeah, yeah. So Billy and I sit there. Robin Williams comes on and does a whole routine, and then goes, "Or for those of you on dope," and does the whole thing backwards. You know. And I thought, Jesus! But I'm looking at Billy, who is studying what's going on on stage, and out of kind of loyalty to Billy, I'm afraid to laugh. Because yeah. I'm thinking, well, if Billy doesn't think he's funny, I better not think he's funny. Yet. Oh, until yeah. It wasn't until there was a gap uh, about five minutes, and I said, What do you think, Billy? Billy said, He's the funniest bastard. Is. So that was Robin Williams. And it, he was playing in a small club in, in LA before all of that, uh, you know, that tremendous career. And of course, he and Billy then became big, great pals.
0: That is a good one. I like the way, I like that, I like that story. And uh, you just mentioned there a hit you wrote there for Slick called Forever and Ever. I just want, without being crude, Phil, um, let's. that was a number one in the 70s in England. And that was a yeah. number one in the 70s. And a time where I think is the best decade for music in the history of music for a variety of yeah. different reasons. Um, but what, just without being crude, when you, when as an author or as a writer, a publisher, you write that song... What kind of money are you talking about? You don't have to mention figures, but in terms of its buying power, when you write a song that's a number one for something like Slick, are you, is that enough money to buy a house or is it enough money to buy a car or is it enough money just to? What is it?
2: Well, it's to be enough money to buy a car. Yeah, If you get a number one in America with, uh, with the Bay City Rollers, that's a different story. Then that could buy you depending your depends on your taste in houses and the location, but it could certainly buy you a house. Yeah.
0: Nice one. And you had a number one with Bay City Rollers in America. So, <laughs> so I
2: think, yeah, yeah. I think, <laughs> I think I think I think that probably bought me some something of, of consequence. Yeah.
0: That's fantastic. I love that. I love that. I love your story about the, about Elvis as well. Um uh what was I gonna say? The other thing I love about you is is not only did you straddle that side of your career, you then Miraculously, as well, straddled the Irish traditional music field. And I love the story about you, your collaboration with Luke Kelly. Tell me a little bit that, about that. And I remember remember I was telling you when we were on the TV show, you sitting on a bed with Luke mm. Kelly in Sheffield or something. So tell me about exactly. Luke Kelly and bring me to that bed, please.
2: <laughs> well, uh, going back to the, at the start of my, 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 how did I get involved with the Dubliners? That's a question that, that has baffled a lot of people. Including some of my friends and associates in, in London, particularly my partner, um, who Bill Martin, who was a, a canny Glaswegian and was very good at uh, at counting the numbers, very good at buying houses with the proceeds of Bay City Rollers Record, but he couldn't understand why I was wasting my time working with a diddy A band like like the Dubliners me i was delighted to get the shot because i'd I'd always had alongside of my passion for pop music i'd always had a great passion for folk music was aware of the dubliners and aware of their music um and when i was approached by them their, uh noel pearson who subsequently pe- became famous as a film producer with my left foot etc cetera, etc cetera, yep. pearson anyway had taken over the dubliners management he contacted me and he said listen um the dubs are on a little bit of a fallow period right now. They've got a bit stale. They had the big hit with seven drunken nights, which was a double-edged sword because although it got them in the charts, it got them a lot of work in kind of clubs up and down the UK. It kind of turned them into a cabaret act, if you follow. Yeah. Um, And he said, they just need, I I think they need a bit of a kick in the arse. They need a bit of a stimulus. So he said, would you be up for that? I thought that challenge was absolutely one I embraced wholeheartedly. So, um it was, it was quite a learning curve with the Dubliners because working with the Bay City Rollers uh, is one thing. Working with the Dubliners is a completely different kettle of fish. They were singularly unimpressed by my track record to date. Um, yeah. Now, so that's two people you oh, walked
0: into the room with who were singularly unimpressed. Do they think you were neat of ours as well?
2: <laughs> they probably didn't notice that end, of it, but they—they were—they track record Eurovision song contest, Bay City Rollers number one in yeah. America didn't cut the mustard with the Dubs at all. So it was I had the fucking of, ages, yeah, a bit of that, a bit of that. So anyway, amongst all of that, I mean, I—I had—I I had, I had uh, so, but I look back on my time with the Dubliners in the studio. I did. I produced them for us maybe a bit four years. And some of my favorite, my favorite memories, just in terms of the characters that they were and the kind of banter. But at a more serious level, Luke Kelly was a force of nature. When, uh, when I took over the Dubliners, as I mentioned, Mario, I did have a great passion for folk music, and I thought I knew something about it. Luke Kelly had an encyclopedic knowledge of folk music and of contemporary music, not just Irish music, but he had, uh, he had served his time and, and earned his spurs in the UK circuit with people like, like, uh, like Ewan McCall, uh, Ian Campbell, um, all of those kind of English folkies. Um, and so he brought a lot of, all of that material to the party as well. Um, um, Woody Guthrie, all of that sort of, sort of broadening the whole kind of folky thing. And as far as our relationship were concerned, he was he was the gamest of all the dubs. You know, I mean, some of them were not were had reservations about was I a bit too like kind of pop oriented to be taken over the Dublin's. For example, there was uh, there was one I think it was in the second album. We were going through material we might record. And Luke sang a song called Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Uh, about a, a union activist in America. I'd never heard the song, but I loved it. I loved the backstory and I, 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 I loved the, how the whole song just, I thought it was very powerful. I asked Luke to sing it a second time. And I said, look, you know what? This is great. And it's kind of Americana. I feel a bit of Americana here. So I think I, a, bit of, a bit of piano would definitely knit this all together. As soon as I mentioned piano <laughs> in the yeah. studio with all the Dubliners, it was a kind of tumbleweed just kind of blew through. Yeah. Because it was raised <laughs> eyebrows. Did he say piano? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but Kelly said, "Yeah, let's give it a shot." So I yeah. sat down, came up with a little lick. That was Kelly. That was Kelly. So he was game and he was he was he was ready to try new stuff. And one of the things he was continually badgering me to do was, as a songwriter, to 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 get into more kind of deeper water than pop it on a, a string or congratulations to the bass leader he used to call them grown-up songs. Phil, you got to write some grown-up songs. That was his, he was continually, continually badgering me. And You know, it's been no exaggeration uh, to say uh, that without Luke Kelly, I may not have written two of the songs that I think are my two best songs probably, two of the songs that are closest to my heart, and both were conceived with Luke Kelly's voice in my head. One was Scorn Out His Simplicity, and the other was a time I love so well.
0: Scorn Not a Simplicity is an extraordinary song because for people who don't know out there, it's for um it's a, it's very sad, but it's a long time ago. Um it's about your son who was born with Down syndrome. Yeah. And Luke encouraged you to write this song. A most extraordinary song, a song, a most extraordinary um uh subject matter for a song. I, I, I presume especially
2: back then, it would be even yeah. now. Yeah. And I don't know of any other song that that deals with it in in that kind of way because I know that I mean I know my fellow songwriters and they would think that it'd be getting into a minefield to to try and write a song about a subject like that. Me having lived it, you know, I mean, I felt that I could I could I could relate the feelings I could I could I could write the song with some integrity and some honesty about it. Um, and it was, you know, I have to tell you, Mario, it was. Um, not only in response to like Luke's, Luke's uh, badgering but it was in the aftermath of that i mean bear in mind i was I was only kind of uh, like twenty two twenty three or something so uh, I found it a very hard thing to handle and I have to confess that I was very immature very stupid really um and i, I for for the first number of months I kind of tried 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 to pretend that it hadn't happened while my wife mm-hmm. was getting on with it you know I just kind of put it put her on the back burner kind of thing so Writing Scorn Knot was one way of... It was kind of like therapy for me to come to terms with the whole thing. Um, yeah. So it has a special place in my heart, needless to say.
0: And why? what are you doing? What was that anecdote I had in my head about you and Luke oh, yeah. sitting on a bed? Oh, yeah. So,
2: OK. Um, I was in Derry on the weekend that internment was introduced. Now, you can't be where I come from at my age in Derry coming from a working-class area with your father, one of the few Catholic policemen in the RUC without being politically aware of what's going on up there. So I happened to be um, up there visiting family on the weekend that internment was introduced. Now, that was, everybody in Derry felt that the town had been violated. You know, there were Saracen cars pulling into working-class areas in in Derry. Guys were getting pulled out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning in their jocks and thrown into the back of, of Army Land Rovers for no other reason for no better reason than they they played GAA, they played Irish music, yeah. they spoke Irish, they had they had some kind of a they had some kind of a republican nationalist kind of an aura about them. That was enough. That was enough. the 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 intelligence, the British intelligence, was so poor that they threw the net very very wide. Yeah. Um, so the Ragusa were at school with me for Christ's sake, who were thrown into internment without trial. So I wrote a song. There's a kind of knee jerk reaction a song called Free the People. Now, um, I, I again I knew that Kelly was, was the very boy for that because when I played it to Kelly, give, given his uh political uh, and, and social conscience, I knew he'd be all over that like a rash. So we recorded it with Luke within weeks and it was it was like a top five record for the dubs. Um, it's not a great song, it's not a great song, but it served a purpose for me. It was my first foray into an area that you could even describe as political. So, But I knew that if I was going to write a song about the the complicated um, state of affairs in in Derry and the north of Ireland, it needed a bit more thought, you know, that Free the People was a knee-jerk reaction. This something of consequence needed more thought and more preparation. So um, I knew that a song had to be written about what was going on up there, and I thought, well... uh, who's going to do it if not yourself because you come from Derry you know the sensibility you should write the song <coughs> pardon me so the song i probably wrote the melody in uh, in a couple of weeks the lyric uh took months and months you know yourself Mario but when you go back to a piece and you hone it you work at the you work at the, the detail of it to get the to get the cadences right to get the, to get the uh you know to get the rise and fall of the of of the words um and i was so aware that with a few wrong chosen words, it could have it just could have fallen over the edge uh, and become another rebel song. And Christ knows that's the one thing we don't need is any more rebel songs. Yeah. So I had to very very carefully um, work my way through that through that song. And even even to get to the point of your story, even when I played it to Luke, you're right. It was on a wet on a wet weekday morning in a in a two star hotel in Sheffield, and I'm in a twin bedded room. It's like early afternoon, the rain's beaten down outside, the curtains are barely drawn. Luke's on one uh, of the uh, twin beds, I'm on the other with my guitar, and I play in the town I love so well with my eyes firmly closed. Why? Because I didn't want to look, I didn't want to see what his reactions were in case they were, in case he was kind of, uh, in case he was cringing or lifting, lifting his eyebrows or turning up his nose. Because trust me, if Luke had thought that the town I love so well was a piece of shit, he would have been the first one to let me know right there and then. And that could have been the end of the story. So with my eyes firmly closed, I played it to Luke until I sang, strummed the last few chords, in the town I love so well. Bling. And I looked across at Luke Kelly and there were tears in his eyes. Now, let me tell you, that didn't happen too often with Kelly. He was a hard uh, uh, and and like an experienced singer, experienced gatherer of songs. So to move Luke Kelly with that song like that, I knew right at that moment, never mind any of the future performances by, by other artists or in, in places like the Royal Albert Hall or at, at Peace Marches in the North. That was the moment when I saw the, the tears in Kelly's eye. That was the moment that I knew that the town I love so well had hit the mark.
0: I'm there I'm there in that room Phil I can see the I can see the lino on the floor I can Mm -hmm. I can smell the chicken Kiev coming up from that two star hotel Um, that is a lovely you tell that story as if you were there this podcast is proudly supported by our friends in Curry's PC World back to the chat And the span of your talent, the 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 range of your talents, not only goes from traditional to rock and roll to pop um, to rock to the seventies, the eighties, and nineties. We've got to talk a little bit about Ireland's call. How did you get the call to write? How did you get Ireland's call?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, a bit of history. Just um, a few weeks ago, I was I was on a on a on a panel uh, in uh, Notre Dame University. I've got a summer campus over in uh, Kylemore Abbey in Connemara, and I was on a panel along with a man called Willie Anderson, classic yep. rugby figure. Willie um, captained the Irish team for a, for a number of years. Willie uh, was the man, uh, actually, who famously
0: stared down the All Blacks in the Hakka uh, when yes. Ireland played New Zealand in 1989, I think. And exactly. he, he, he made the very, very daring move of when the New Zealanders were doing the Hakka to slightly disrespect them and urge the Irish team forward, forward, yes. forward, yep. forward yep. into the faces yep. of the New Zealanders. And we still okay. got hockey.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. As 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 Willie says about that, he said, he said, we may have won the dance, but we lost the game. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, to get back to the story, Willie tells me uh, he was there when at the uh, the first Rugby World Cup in Australia, right? Um, a week or so uh, before that, maybe a couple of weeks beforehand, there had been a kind of a, a terrorist bomb that had gone off at the border, aimed at a returning Northern Ireland judge. Who was blown to bits, but in in a in a car that was in the same kind of stretch of road where three of the Irish squad, um, yeah, Nigel Carr them, and
0: and Nigel
2: and, never played yeah. never played again. That's right. Mm, so mm. you know that story. So mm. fast forward the tape for a couple of weeks, and they're now in the World Cup in uh, in uh, in Australia, having lost a few of their players because of this. And they they figured that well, given that kind of circumstance, maybe singing I Run the Vein as the Irish National Anthem is maybe just not the coolest thing we could do here, right? Mm. So it was agreed that that would be parked. So what was the option? What were the alternatives? Now, Willie said he suggested Danny Boy, which I thought would have been a great suggestion. But um in the in the general discussion, somebody said, he said, no, but wait a minute, I have a tape we can play. And the tape was James Last playing The Rose of Tralee. So for the yes. anthem... The Irish anthem be, before playing before playing you no know, you know, it's not exactly a song you want to go to war to, you know. No, uh, it's about a bunch of girls standing on stage in yeah, a line. Yeah, exactly, and uh, uh, but in the aftermath, of uh, Con Houlihan, the great writer, he had a headline in the, in the Irish press about it: "God Save the Rose of Trelief. Well, that was a kind of that was a sort of a low point, and I think. The, the powers that be and there are we've got to do something about this. Now yeah. it took them quite a few years before they finally confronted that elephant in the drawing room. But having confronted it, they called me into a meeting. Right. Um and I think when I look back on this, people say, Why you I think, well, I think one of the smarter things that they did was to pick a songwriter from the north of Ireland because the brief was to come up with a sporting anthem that would be all-inclusive. That was a buzzword at the time. Hands across the border, all-inclusive, etc. Because there was this kind of uncomfortable uh, feeling when Auron Nveen would be played and there'd be a lot of the guys in the squad who would be from the north. Correct. And what that means is rugby in the north is a game that is not played in Catholic schools normally catholic schools they play gaa or soccer so rugby is a game in the main there are exceptions but in the main that is that is that is played in protestant uh, unionist upmarket schools right so therefore if someone has has graduated from ulster rugby to be on the irish team he's coming from that background therefore he's a non catholic he's a unionist and for him uh ironnevian is not his national anthem you know he's brought up in the unionist tradition where he he feeds him, feeds himself as British. His national anthem is "God Save the Queen." Now people may not agree with that, but you have to respect it. And that was that was that was a situation right then when I was called into the meeting, and my brief was to write a sporting anthem that could be comfortably sung by players and supporters alike, be they from the north or the south. Because talking of supporters, the same thing would apply. You know, if you're at a rugby game in Lansdowne Road, you know yourself, you're hearing a lot of Northern accents there. So, in the days before Ireland's call, when "Iran Levine" would be played, in fairness, there was there was a respect, but there was a silence. They didn't join in and sing the song. So that was my brief uh, to come up with a song which would be would be uh, all inclusive and could be comfortably sung by players, supporters alike. So um, that was that was a kind of a big ask, you know, because I knew that, uh, you know, you, you're not going to please all the people all the time. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did it have to do? What, what boxes did it have to take? Well, particularly it had to be a song which would be easily learned. Uh, Number one, number two would be kind of stirring and a bit martial, etc. And number three would feel like all inclusive lyrically. Yeah. Mm. So the first two, they're easy enough. The lyric was the tricky part because um, there were certain words, certain phrases, certain images you just couldn't use. I couldn't, for example, I felt I couldn't use a word like and united we'll go forward. Because yes. Somebody, on the North, somebody would take the hump, you know, and say, yes. this is not about united Ireland. You know? yes. Or I couldn't say, and the 32 counties. No, 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 no. 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 So yes. that was a big stumbling block. I mean, that, that, yes. was a, that was a bit of a writer's block of that one until I came up with the four proud provinces of Ireland. Yes. That was the key because rugby being a provincial uh, sport, nobody could take offense at that. Um, How interesting. How funny, interesting. Story, funny story. Yeah. I have to tell you this. Yeah. When, I, when I played the demo, having written the song, and then I decided this doesn't need, uh, it doesn't need like, um, an Irish tenor to sing this. This, is, this, is, this should be more kind of of the people kind of a singer, you know? So this it coincided with the, with the huge success of The Commitment, right? Yes. So, uh, so I grabbed Andrew Strong, Uh, whose dad, Rob Strong, comes from Derry. So there's another connection. So Andrew had this big, big voice. So when I I played the demo... Exactly, exactly, exactly. Nobody sleeps when he's on, that's for Mm. sure. So when I played the demo, handed out the lyric sheet to this uh, table, this row of blazers in the headquarters of the the IRFU, handed out the lyric and then uh, pressed the button and played the track and they're all kind of Nodding, nodding, and clapping on the, on the beat and at the wrong time. said. Then I asked, played it a second time. Yeah. They're now smiling a bit. And I'm thinking. I think. I think I may have won them over. But the, the only dissenting voice was the blazer from Cork, who objected on the grounds that Cork didn't get mentioned. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that is well, Totally true, that is predictably yeah. True, why well, wasn't Cork Mentioned in the four pro provinces of Ireland You never yeah. mentioned Cork um, oh, That's absolutely Brilliant, absolutely brilliant, well let me tell you Like, like do you know, I've decided where I am On this song actually, Phil, because you know it's Marmite For people, um, and where I am On this song is, when we're losing, I Fucking hate it, and when we're winning <laughs> I love it <laughs> That's the you way know, it is because when Irish rugby is going well you go when Irish rugby is flying you go come the day and come the hour yeah. and then when Irish rugby is losing you're going jesus come
2: that piece of shit yeah yeah jesus yeah. christ <laughs> that's true that's true but you know even Willie Anderson again was saying that the importance uh, of the, of of the song the importance of singing as a kind of bonding exercise with uh with the guys on the team he thought it was very important. He said, I wish to Christ Ireland's call had been around when I was playing. So, yeah. um, I, listen, that that leads me on to something that I have a kind of beef, a, a bee in my bonnet about. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when national anthems are performed by teams representing their country, now you watch Italy, and boy, those guys are giving it socks, they're singing their hearts out, they're singing their hearts out. Look at the way the Welsh they're singing their hearts out, whether, whether it be in rugby or in soccer. Um yes. in Ireland and rugby they're coming around a little bit to singing Ireland's call, fair enough. Mm. Um soccer, it's unbelievable. I mean, I about six months ago when at one of the internationals, the young goalkeeper Gavin Bazunu, right, mm. whose, whose mm. dad is from Nigeria, right, mm. and I said, Pans along, pans along the Irish squad. The only one who's singing as Galiga, yeah, Shinafena a is Gavin Bazunu yeah. right? Who's a black kid whose father is from is from from Nigeria. So I, I put up a tweet at halftime saying the most interesting thing of this game so far is that the only Irish player singing the national anthem is Gavin Bazunu from Nigeria, who's then gone in between the sticks and played a blinder. So as it as it happens, Gavin Bazunu contacted me subsequently and said thanks for the mention. I'm a big fan of the music, etc. And I've watched his career now go through the roof. He's one of our great finds. But there you are. So. I, I make the point that why don't they learn the bloody national anthem?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And,
2: and listen, I didn't
0: know much, most of that story. In fact, hardly any of it about uh, about Ireland's call. And that was really well put, actually. And thanks a million, Phil. Um, Phil, during this, one of the things we do during this podcast is uh, there. I have um, people listening to this podcast live mm-hmm. and uh, they're going to phone into you. They're on the they're on the line and they want to ask you a question or two. Some of them you might even know. Hope you're willing to talk to them, are you?
2: Absolutely, 100%. Do
0: you know who's on the line for you? Christy Moore is on the line for you. Will you say hello to him?
2: Absolutely, Christy. How's it going, Phil? Uh, I'm getting a bit of a roast here from Mario, uh, uh, Christy, but apart from that, um, I'm hanging in there like yourself. You know, old dog for the hard road. Old dog for the hard road. It's great to hear. It's great to hear your stories,
4: Phil, and you're a fantastic, loquacious person. (laughs) And you've never, ever, ever lost the... The ability to talk utter shite for long and large amounts of time and you're able to do it in no matter what continent you're in phil in in northern ireland ireland Derry, spain it doesn't matter whether you've got chardine sandwiches in your mouth or you're you're you're, you're listening to elvis going down the m50 you are this is absolute golden horse right here i'm listening to brilliant stuff but listen phil i wonder could we reignite the old golden days with planksty and I'm thinking of new material and I wonder do you think we could do do you think we could do an old trad version at all of um Shang um, from Shawati Wachi or from from the from the Bay City Rollers? At all, how we go shang a lang a lang a lang shang a lang shang 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 lang 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 shang a lang shang a lang lang lung dilly o that do da dilly o doo doo da shang a lang a lang a long long a long a lo oh what that what that go well no well
2: I think if you can persuade Andy Irvine and Johnny Moynihan, the rest, and Donaloney and the boys, I'm 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 on board with that, Christy. Yeah,
0: that's great. That's great. Thank you very much, Christy Moore. Ronan O'Gara is on the line as well. Um, he he's just phoned in as well. Say hello to Ronan O'Gara, Phil.
2: Hello, Ronan. Good lad. Yeah. How's it
1: going, Phil? Um, really enjoying the conversation with
0: Mario. Um, but I have to say. I'm taking gross exception to the fact that you are now saying that you refused to write
4: Cork into Ireland's call. (laughs) Do I take it that that's
2: the case? (laughs) I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. It wasn't deliberate, Ronan. It wasn't deliberate. It It was an oversight.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of oversights as far as I can see, Phil. But listen, we let you off this time. And good luck with the rest of your career anyway, because uh, I wouldn't be playing the Opera House anytime soon if I were you. <laughs> Merci. That, thanks. That's a bit bit caustic. Um, Christy Dignam is on the line, uh, Phil. Say hello.
2: Hello, Christy. Keep her going.
1: Yeah. no, how are you doing, Phil? Fucking amazing listening to you here, rabbit and on. Jesus, you've got a fucking Cell battery in you. Are you on? Are you still on the Smack? Because you're fucking unbelievable there. Well, it looks you up on Wikipedia there. You're 98 years of age. Are you on the gear or something? I mean, you're fucking unbelievable. Listen, myself and the boys in Aslan are thinking of doing a version of that song you wrote. Um, how much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> Did you write that? look, Well, it was written in 1897, so I think it must have been new.
0: thanks christy he's an awful bollocks actually that's he's he's always ringing into these podcasts um ronan keating's on the line phil he wants to say hello Uh, say hello say hello how you doing ronan
2: nice to hear from you
4: fair play how's it going phil i'm a massive admirer of yours and really you know i think you're one of the great artists of the um the 18th century but listen i just want to you know um myself and the boys and boys own you know um we haven't been together in a while we're thinking of getting back together but None of the lads are around, so Keith Kate Duffy's working in Thailand. he's making ozone and sort of covid nineteen stuff um Shane is he crashed his car there three weeks ago and um I think it was Surrey, so he's um, he's gone over a cliff there, so there's only me and Mikey left. Mikey's insane, so um that's just it's just me left. Would you considering? doing something with me. I mean, I know you're good on the piano. I, I was thinking we could do a kind of a pop version of Scorn Not His Simplicity. What would you think? Maybe, maybe, you know, upbeat, more of an upbeat version. I think it's very downbeat, the whole thing. If we could just sort of, you know, Scorn Not His Simplicity. Oh no, oh no. Get the lads in the background. Simplicity, simplicity. What, what do you think?
2: I think I need to give that some thought, uh, Ronan. I'm not sure we're on a winner there.
0: Well, you know what, Phil? That's not the first time Ronan hasn't been on a winner. Um, Phil, this, you're, 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 playing along. You're, playing, you're playing along beautifully with this stuff. Uh, what else was I going to say? Um, well, yeah, I was going to offer you a little, uh, I was going to offer you a, a, a what do you call it? Uh, a choice here. Uh, if you had one drink and three records, your last day on Earth, your last evening on Earth, one drink and three records, what would it be? Settle down on a nice catch. First of all, what would you drink?
2: I would drink probably a nice bottle of uh, Bordeaux. So French wine. French wine, about 1966, if uh, if if I had the means to afford it on my last day, if I hadn't spent all my money by then. Um, the record would be, uh, you've lost that love and feeling by the Righteous Brothers. Wow. Um, probably... Uh, one of the great records of all time. Um, and I think "The uh, Do Run Run by The Crystals, which is um, the, the ultimate uh, two minutes and 40 seconds of pop heaven produced by Phil Spector, who, who took the job of record producer and elevated it. Record producers used to sit behind the desk and try and get onto tape, what the band were actually creating out in the studio. Um, Phil Spector took it at stage further. He said, right, you, that's the start-off point. Now, when I get busy and get creative with the echoes and the tape delays and the EQs and do this, that, and the other, and, and, and dub on a second drum kit, et cetera, et cetera, um, and just create that wall of noise, as it was called, that's that's the classic. uh Do Run Run is a classic example of economy in pop music. Not only is it three chords... It's three notes. Madam on a Monday, and my heart stood still. The do run run run, the do run run. Yeah, my heart stood still. Yeah, her name was Jill. And mm. when I walked her home, the do run run run, the do run. run. That's the song. But when Phil Spector takes it, it just creates this pop masterpiece. Mm. You have one record left. One record left. Um, do you know what? I would be. It, it, it sounds a bit uh self-serving, but. uh I I would be I'd be uh, I'd be tempted I'd be tempted uh, to have a Luke Kelly record Yeah mm-hmm. I, but Kelly had a big big influence on on on, uh, on 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 me as a as a as a writer and a producer and a arranger and So I think I might I think I might indulge myself and have uh, Luke Kelly sing and scorn not his simplicity.
0: Oh, that's lovely. Um, listen, I want to thank you for your time. You know, you really are. You really have a really, really good a gift with telling a story yourself. And thank you very much for sharing with them, sharing those stories with me. And listen, it's great that we got to do this. I said we would when we met on the TV show. And I'm for delighted sure. to make it happen.
2: You were on that TV show, Mario. You were the best warm up act I've had in a long, long time. So I'm grateful <laughs> to you for that. That's the reason I agreed to do this.
0: Yeah, that is no problem at all, Phil. I'm delighted to be your warm up backed. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Great pleasure. I enjoy it every minute. Every minute.
0: And you know what? I could have listened to Phil all day long. There is just such a wealth of stories that he has to pick from, uh, and I really loved hearing them. Listen, loads more great interviews for you in the next few weeks, including Ireland's leading crime journalist Nicola Talent coming up on this podcast very soon. Might even ask her to do one of those um, very serious radio adverts she does. You know those ones? Coming up in the Sunday world. Thanks to Curries, as always, for their ongoing support. Subscribe and follow and email me. We really appreciate it when you subscribe and follow and leave a rating or even leave a comment. Um, you know, no matter what you feel like commenting, if it's about sketches, ones you'd like to see, sketches you've enjoyed, etc., etc., and you can contact me personally, Mario Rosenstock at gmail.com. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. See you same time, same place next week. Take it handy.